Well, beloved, we take up the third sermon this morning in the series that we began on living as a minority community in a hostile world. Last week, we introduced a sermon or we brought you a message entitled Persecution is Our Future. It was a difficult message to prepare, and it was certainly a difficult message to preach, and I'm sure that it was also a difficult message to hear. It is not something that anyone who is in their right mind would look forward to. This morning, the third message in this series is entitled, Humility is Our Character. And there is a certain logic that is going to um, prevail in the, in the bringing of these messages, including some of the sequencing of them. And in light of the, the inevitability of persecution coming in this country among and on the people of God, how we respond to it is going to be very, very critical in terms of our gospel witness to the world. And humility is one of those Christian character characteristics or Christian virtues that we would all acknowledge here this morning is very, very important, and yet it's also something that is extremely elusive to each and every one of us. And the opportunity to demonstrate a character of humility in a world that's gone mad will have a very, very powerful gospel benefit to our friends, to our neighbors, to our family members, to our co-workers. So we are looking this morning at the character of humility. I begin this morning with a quote for you from T.S. Eliot, where he says, in quote, Humility is the most difficult of all virtues to achieve. Nothing dies harder than the desire to think well of oneself. Well, isn't that the truth, huh? Nothing dies harder than the desire to think well of oneself. The world at large is a place where the virtue of Christian humility is both an undervalued and neglected commodity. We don't think much of it as a nation at large. John R.W. Stott, the late British preacher and statesman, said, and I quote, if pride and madness go together, so do humility and sanity. And I think we could all agree that we are living in a world that is characterized by pride and madness. It is madness. But we, as the people of God, are called to live in a different way. We are called to live with sanity. We are called to live with a character of humility. So what is humility? What is it? Well, the Greek word translated humility is a very, very long word. A very long word. Lots of letters. But basically it means this. It is the willingness to assume a lowly position to serve others. Humility is the willingness, and that's a key word, the willingness. That is a a volitional decision to assume a lowly position in order to serve other people. 
It is the opposite of self-exaltation, which is the very essence of sin. Seen as a virtue, humility is a distinctly Christian word and concept. In fact, it is not used by the Greek writers prior to the Christian era. Nor is it used after that unless they are influenced by Christians. The actual word was used very despairingly by the secular Greeks and it would equate to something along the lines of groveling. Groveling. But this notion that one would choose willingly to uh, assume a lowly position to serve others, meaning not that you are lowly necessarily, but that you are willing to do that to serve others is what makes it a Christian virtue and is what gives it its power and its uh, demonstration, really, of the character of our own Savior. And in fact, it is the advent of Jesus Christ that that changes the understanding of this Greek word. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many Even the Son of Man, that is, he who, according to Daniel, right, will receive from the Ancient of Days the title deed to the earth and establish a kingdom which will rule forever, smashing all pretenders to the throne. Even he, that exalted one, didn't come to be served. If anyone deserved to be served, it was him. But he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. We see it illustrated even in the night in which he was betrayed. In John chapter 13 and verses 12 and following. So, John records, when he, that is Jesus, had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. This morning I want to look with you under this topic of humility. I want to look at four statements about humility. Four statements about humility that explain why it is an indispensable character quality for the follower of Jesus Christ. It is an indispensable character quality. This is not an option that is added on at a higher cost. This is of the very essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So four statements We'll unpack them together. The first statement is this. Humility is rational in light of our nature. Humility is rational in light of our nature. That is, it is, it is logical. It makes sense. It, it is, it is in, in, um, in keeping with reality about who we are. That is, in light of our nature. 
In light of our nature, it's a rational thing to practice humility. True humility is grounded in a right understanding of God and man. That's where it begins, a right understanding of God and man. As one writer said, the humble man is he who acknowledges he has no claim on God, but that God has a total claim on him. That's why it's rational. No claim on God, but God has a total claim on me, on you, on us. So humility is rational in light of our nature, first, as creatures. Humility is rational in light of our nature as creatures. We are creatures. We are created. We could go many places to to demonstrate this, but probably the best, I would think, would be to Genesis, and to Genesis chapter 2 and to verse 7. We're there, it's written for us, and the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. God scooped up some dust of creation, fashioned it into a man, and animated it, granting that first one, Adam, life. And we all descend from his stuff. Later in chapter 3, of course, God says to Adam after the fall that, that from dust you have been taken to dust you shall return, right? If you have stood at the side of a grave. There is no more vivid illustration of the reality that we have been taken from the earth and to the earth we shall return. Our nature as creatures should humble us. We are finite beings, finite beings. We are not self-existent. We are not self-sustaining. We are entirely dependent upon God for both our life and the very next breath that we will draw Every aspect of who we are is dependent upon our creator. That should rationally produce humility in our hearts and minds. It does for the psalmist. In Psalm chapter 8 and verses 3 and 4, the psalmist writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers... The moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. You know, when you begin to feel like you're maybe important. Kind of big stuff, you know. It's really good to get in the car and to, and to turn and drive away from the city lights. And just keep driving until, until the, big, the buildings start to reduce in height to one story. And then keep driving. Until there, the buildings are 
a hundred yards between them, a mile between them, a hundred miles between them. Big sky country, it's called. I know for most of us, we haven't seen it in a very long time, if at ever. But when you get out there, and then you begin to look up, and you begin to look around, you begin to understand what the psalmist has said. When I look up, when I see the glory just just painted across the night sky, when I, when I see the wide open expanse, when I, when I see the massive mountains, what am I? I am nothing. Nothing. Road trips are good for humility. I heard that, Art. <laughs> so humility is, is rational in light of our nature as creatures. It's also rational in light of our nature as sinners. So it's not just that we are creatures, that is that we are not self-existent, we are not self-created, we are not self-sustaining, but it is also rational in light of the fact that we are sinners. Again, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That should humble us. That should humble us. Sinners, before the presence of a holy God, we should be undone. We should be stripped of all basis for boasting. The prophet Isaiah recognized that reality in Isaiah chapter 6, and I will turn you to that passage. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. He covered his face that he might not look on. He covered his feet that they might not touch and defile. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled, at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am undone. To be in the presence of God, to see the glory of God in his perfection. I am undone. As sinners, we have nothing to boast about, nothing to be proud of. And when we rightly view ourselves as sinners, it is 
helpful in the pursuit of Christian character. Humility is rational. In light of our nature as creatures, it's rational in light of our nature as sinners. It's rational in light of our nature as saints. Creatures, sinners, saints. We are children of God. Is that not true? We are the children of God. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are trusting in him and him alone as your righteousness. If you have confessed your sin and turned in faith, believing that his death, burial, and resurrection was for you. As a child of God, you have come to understand something. What you've come to understand is that your status, your value... And your purpose in life are all inextricably woven together and bound up in Christ. In Christ. It is the mystery of our spiritual union with Jesus. Our life is now bound up in his. In his. We could say it another way. The Christian knows that he possesses nothing that he has not received. Is nothing but for the grace of God. And apart from Christ can do nothing, right? We have nothing. We are nothing. We can do nothing apart from Christ. Apart from Christ. So even as the very children of God, any boasting that is to be done can be done only in this, right? That God loved us and sent his son. Humility, my friends, is a very rational thing. That's why we say that humility and sanity go hand in hand. And pride and madness cavort together. Humility is rational in light of our nature. Second statement. Humility is required. Humility is required in order to experience the grace of God. It is rational in light of our nature as created beings, as sinners, as saints. It is also required in order to experience the grace of God. There is no Ability to experience the grace of God outside of the realm of humility. Outside of that realm. Martin Luther said, quote, God created the world out of nothing. And as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. I like that. God created the world out of nothing, and as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. God certainly made something out of Martin Luther, did he not? Humility is required in order to to experience God's grace. Let me illustrate this a few ways. First, humility draws God's favorable gaze. Humility draws God's favorable gaze so turn to isaiah 66 so to the end of the book isaiah 66 
In the second half of verse 2. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. To this one I will look. The prophet Isaiah records a rather lengthy series of prophecies, really, right, that are gathered here in these 66 chapters. But as he closes out this collection, we find God's final words to his ancient people, and they are, they are words of both judgment and hope. They are words of judgment and hope. It is judgment upon that that rebellious generation because because of the fact they had the very temple of God, so God's the symbol of God's presence among them, and they had the Torah, they had God's very word, but they had neglected both of them. They had externalized both of them. Take a look at uh, chapter 65, for example, in verse 2. where he says to them, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. I have spread out my hands all day long. He has, he has called, he has pleaded, he has threatened, he has begged nearly to, to, for his people to come and to turn back to him. And yet, they want no part of him. They maintain his rituals, but only in externalized form. They, they read his law, but they pay no attention to it. And so he speaks words of judgment, but he also includes a, a promise of blessing, a, a future blessing there in chapter 65, verses 17, really to the end of the chapter, where he says, Behold, I created new heavens and a new earth, And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. What are the former things? The former things are the rebellion of his people. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Drop down verse 20. No longer will there be an infant who lives about a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And then verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. It's a prophecy of the coming messianic kingdom. It's the, it's the promise of a time to come when the people of God will finally uh, understand who God is and worship Him in spirit and truth. But how does one get into that future coming kingdom? How does one escape the madness? Chapter 66, but to this one I will look, 
to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Entrance into that future kingdom, that that blessed state that has been promised through the prophet is for those who are characterized by a humility of spirit and a reverence and love for the word of God. Those are the ones who will find the relief. The Hebrew word here, by the way, in verse 2, translated here in your English text as humble, could also be translated poor in spirit. It could be translated poor in spirit. And if we were to translate it that way, then what would be recalled to our mind is Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In Jesus' words, we find the echo of Isaiah 66 and verse 2. Humility draws the favorable gaze of God. What does it mean to tremble at the word of God, by the way? What does it mean to tremble at the word of God? Does it mean when I open my Bible, my knees start knocking? No. No. It speaks of reverence. It speaks of a reverence for the word of God. A recognition that the scriptures that we hold communicate to us the the mind, will, and character of God. That is that we, through the word of God, we are entering into the presence of God. And yes, that should make us tremble. It should make us treat the Bible with reverence. It means we should be attentive to it when it is read, when it is heard. We are to obey the word of God. Humility draws God's favorable gaze. Secondly, humility brings harmony within the church. Humility brings harmony within the church. This is under the statement that humility is required, right, in order to experience God's grace. Well, what are the grace of God that we experience? Well, one is that it draws God's favorable gaze. Secondly is that it brings harmony within the church. So 1 Peter chapter 5, please. We experience God's grace through humility in the harmony within the church. That is the grace of God. When you think about the church, you really do have to marvel. You have to marvel because the church of Jesus Christ is made up of people drawn from all socioeconomic backgrounds, all ethnicities, all various life experiences, all of the prejudices that we bring into it, all of our personal preferences, all of our aggravating and annoying habits. I mean, it's hard to be husband and wife and then to be with 500 people. 
right? When you put a lot of rats in the same cage, it can get difficult. And yet, and yet, there is this amazing unity in a local church. And that is an expression of the grace of God. And it's brought about through humility. Okay, so First Peter. First Peter 5, verses 1 to 7. The words for us here are words written in a context of persecution. So the, the overarching idea behind Peter's teaching here in chapter 5 is persecution. Look at chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So the context here is persecution. The church, the believers are being persecuted. And so now Peter, in light of that persecution, is going to bring some instruction with regard to harmony within the church. Now, why would persecution create situations of disharmony within the church? I I would think, you know, at first blush, wouldn't everybody be pulled together, you know, in in harmony if, if there's this outside pressure coming on? Well, probably at some level, yes. But people have strong opinions about how to respond to their circumstances. And that doesn't go away in persecution. And so some want to do this and others want to do that. And The community that Peter's writing to apparently are not able to live or struggling to live in harmony with each other when all of this persecution is coming down on them from the outside. And specifically, it's an intergenerational problem. Wow, that's new and different. Well, there are three groups Peter addresses here in chapter 5. Three groups. The elders of the church, the young, and then the entire congregation. So, here we go. Verse 1, chapter 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ... And a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the un fading crown of glory. Boil it all down, 
Elders, be gentle in your shepherding of the people of God, particularly when we are in a time of persecution. Don't be harsh with people. One could only imagine all kinds of scenarios, of course, that might arise in a time of persecution in which the elders might need to be involved and in which they could lose patience with someone who perhaps in the face of persecution, their faith is is wilting or faltering. And he says, be gentle. Be gentle with them. He also goes on in verse 5 to speak to the young. You young men, I think young men there is a stands in for all youth. But in particular, there's something about young men that they need to get over. And what that is, is themselves. Basically, they need to get over themselves. They need to learn patience. They need to learn humility. They need to learn to respect those who are their elders. And not just in the formal sense, but in the sense of the mature among the people of God, those who have walked with God for a long time. A long time. You young men, likewise, and I think the likewise, by the way, goes all the way back. I'll just show you this. I think it goes all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 13. It's a continuation that flows through the book. It's the same theme. Chapter 2, verse 13, you see, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He goes on. I think that's what the likewise means. You young men, likewise, that is, submit yourself, just like everybody else is being called to do. Be subject to your elders. Now, I think there, and it could go either way, the, the word elders is anothrist. That means that it doesn't have the direct object in front of it. It is not the elders. So I think it's a reference to the older members of the congregation. Not everybody agrees with that. Some thinks it's a continuation of the thought of the prior four verses. And it's speaking about the specific men who have been set apart as elders in the congregation. I wouldn't, wouldn't want to argue all afternoon about it. But I think, it's a, I think a reference here of the young, is uh, young men is speaking about the young within the congregation. I think the, the subject to your elders is speaking about the older members of the congregation. And basically what he is saying here is for the, for the young, those that, that have the vigor of youth, don't use that to, to thrust aside the, the maturity of age. Yes, you're faster. Yes, you're stronger. Maybe even your mind is still quicker. But there is much to be gained from someone who has walked with God for a very long time, and you are still a novice. You are a novice. You do not know what it is like to walk with Christ for decades and decades through the difficulties of life. You don't know. So, submit yourself. Humble yourself in the presence of those who have walked with Christ for a long time. 
By the way, you see the same basic idea expressed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5. You can go over here, go over there and take a peek at that. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Paul is instructing Timothy, still a relatively young man, which, by the way, probably 40 years old. So maybe our understandings of youth and age are uh, somewhat culturally influenced. But anyway, Paul says to Timothy, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. Appeal to him as a father. So how are we to treat our fathers? Right? We are to honor our father and mother, are we not? We're to honor our father and mother. So what Paul says to Timothy is honor the older men in the congregation, Timothy. What Peter is saying here, younger men, honor those older men among you. Be in submission to them. Humble yourself before them. Make the decision to willingly serve them. You may think you have better ideas. You may have better ideas. But recognize your position. He goes on to the entire congregation here in the second half of the verse. All of you, I guess that sweeps up everybody, right? All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Clothe yourselves with humility, by the way, there in verse 5. Very interesting Greek word. Put on the apron of a slave. Put on the apron of a slave. Clothe yourself with humility. This is Peter writing. Got to believe that John chapter 13 and verse 4 is rolling and resonating in Peter's mind, right? It says, Jesus got up after, uh, from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. You remember that? And he washed their feet. And when he came to Simon Peter, Peter said, Lord, uh, you shall never wash my feet, right? Why does Peter say that? Because it, he doesn't want the Lord to take the position of a slave. It upends all of his understandings of power and prerogative and social status and everything else. Of course, Jesus gives them a lesson there that they never, ever forget, and I don't believe Peter forgets it. Put on the apron of a slave. By the way, it's the apron that distinguishes the slave from the free man. So when Jesus, Jesus didn't just put a towel on in order to keep his, his uh, clothes from getting wet. It's more than that. He purposefully put on the outer attire of a slave that he might vividly demonstrate to everybody that he was taking the lowest position to wash their feet. 
So all of us put on the apron of a slave. Why? Why should we stoop to the level of a a slave? For, because, verse 5, God is what? Opposed to the proud. Because God is opposed to the proud. That is that God is actively opposed, not passively opposed. God is actively opposed all the time, regularly. He never takes a break. He doesn't go on vacation. He never sleeps. He never naps. He never looks the other way. He is always actively opposed to the proud. He is opposed to the proud. But... He actively bestows his favor, that is his grace, in response to humility. Why take the apron of a slave? Because it is the path to greatness. The way up is the way down. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And if our Savior came not to be served, but to serve, then therefore we as created in his likeness, must follow his path. Got to follow his path. Therefore, verse 6, in light of this profound reality, allow yourselves to be humbled. Voluntarily accept your circumstances. What circumstances? Verse 12, the fiery ordeal among you. Understand that it comes from God's mighty hand. That is, that it is not random. It didn't come in uh, when he wasn't looking. It didn't catch God by surprise. The difficult circumstances they find themselves living in is something that has come to them under the mighty hand of God. Know that, verse 6, in the proper time or at the proper time, and and that would be uh, speaking of the last days, at that time you will be exalted. When Christ returns, we will be revealed for who we are, as sons of the King. But in the meantime, in the meantime, voluntarily humble yourself. And don't be anxious, verse 7, Don't be anxious in these kind of difficult, scary circumstances. Why? Because God cares for you. Because God cares for you. So throw your burden onto him. Verse 7. Throw your burden onto him. Cast your cares on God. Third. Humility is required in order to experience God's grace. Third, humility opens us to the scriptures. Humility opens us to the scriptures. James chapter 1. Right? It's required in order to experience God's grace. One of the graces of God that is poured out on his people is that the scripture is opened up to us. That is, we understand it. We get it. It changes us. Now, the book of James, as you, I'm sure, well know, is about a living faith, right? Verse 17, chapter 2, 
Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. The book of James concerns itself with a living faith. A faith that demonstrates itself in deeds rather than words. Verse 18, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I will show you my faith by my works. So the book of James concerns a living faith in time of great difficulty and adversity. In the first chapter, of course, he speaks of that. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Okay, so the book is about trials. It's about difficulties. And basically, in chapter 1, James sets out two tests whereby the living faith is put on display. The first one, in verses 2 through 18, is how do we respond to difficult circumstances? How do we respond? Are we like the person who is double-minded, verse 8, unstable in all their ways, right? Tossed to and fro. Or are we like the one who blames God? Verse 14. That's the first test. How do we respond to difficult circumstances? The second test is in verses 19 to 27, and that's how do we respond to God's word? How do we respond to the word of God? Nestled in this section is verse 21. That's the verse I want to zero in on, verse 21. Verse 21 is about our proper response to the life-giving Word of God and the necessary conditions in order to receive that life-giving Word in the midst of very, very difficult circumstances. Verse 21, therefore, therefore, Oh, when we see therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what is it therefore? That's right. So it's pointing us backwards. It's looking back, actually, to verse 20. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Actually, let me pick it up in verse 18 and read it to you. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of God does not achieve the righteous excuse me, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your Soul. So it is talking about the Word of God. The Word of God. And when the Word of God comes to us in the midst of our difficult circumstances, there is a temptation to be slow to hear and quick to speak. There is a temptation to be angry, to not want to hear the Word of God. And James says, the anger of man does not what? Achieve the righteousness of God. An angry response to the word of God in the midst of your difficult circumstances will not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, therefore, when, res- when confronted by the living word, rather than respond in anger, we are to respond instead, verse 21, in what? 
humility. You see it? We're to respond in humility. Now, James is implying here, when he says, put aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness, I think he's implying here that the reason that, that, that we don't respond well to the word of God in the midst of our difficult circumstances is because there is sin that is rooted in our hearts. And we need to deal with it. It may be the sin of disappointment. It may be the sin of, of uh, lost dreams, as it were. It may be the, the, the growing sin of anger because someone has sinned against you and you're unwilling to let it go. There's all kinds of possibilities. But what James is saying here is don't respond in anger. It doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. Instead, put off the wickedness and the, the filthiness of our hearts and instead, in humility, humble our hearts receive the implanted word, receive the word of God, which is able to save your souls. In other words, we've got to repent. We've got to repent of whatever it is that is causing us to be so angry in the midst of our difficult circumstances. Humble our hearts and receive the word of God. Welcome the implanted word. Welcome the implanted word. You know, beloved, humility and anger are mortal enemies. They are mortal enemies. They will not make nice with each other. Anger feeds on pride like rats feed on garbage. Anger feeds on pride like rats feed on garbage. So it is the environment of humility that cleans out the garbage. When the anger has nothing to feed on, it, it drives it away. That's why James tells us to be quick to hear. Be quick to hear the word of God. Not to, not to vocalize all of our exceptions and defenses and reasons why it doesn't apply to me in this circumstance, and on and on it goes. And we're all super good at it, right? We all have first-rate, high-powered, defensive lawyers that reside within our own little hearts. They are all on retainer and available at a moment's notice. Right? Yeah, you know it. Because I know it. Okay? I hate that guy. But he's always there. He's always there. So humility is required to experience God's grace. Third statement. Ooh. Third statement. Humility is responsive to authority by submission. Third Third big statement here, humility is responsive to authority by submission. We recognize that God is the source of all authority structures, and thus ultimately submission to authority is submission to God. It is submission to God. And we are commanded by the New Testament to submit to authority in the various realms of our lives that have been established over us by God. The home, the church, Society at large, both work and the government. These are all realms in which there is authority, and the authority has been established by God, and we're called to submit to that authority, and in doing so, we are submitting to God. Peter works it out for us. First Peter chapter 2 begins in verse 13. 
It ties together the whole idea of of humility and submission. How are we to respond when we are persecuted? We are to respond with humility of submission. Now that is difficult. But here they go. Verse 13, chapter 2, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of Christ. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. So there's a call to submit to human government as established by God. Verse 18, there is a call to submit in the marketplace. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there? If when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And then we have Christ as our example, right? Like a sheep is silent before its shears. While reviled, he doesn't revile in return. Then Peter continues in the home front, right? So he's covered the government. He's covered the marketplace. Now he goes into the home front, chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, in what way? In the way of submission, like Christ. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Wives are called to submit to their husbands even when their husband is unbelieving and unreasonable. Husbands, you are not off the hook. I am not off the hook. Verse 7, you husbands in the same way, in the same way, that is to submit to your duties as well, to sacrificially love your wife in the same way, live with your wife in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So in the home, there is this call for a mutual submission, each to their proper roles. We are to submit to our roles, because in doing so, we submit to God who established the roles. It is a demonstration of the humility of our hearts. And then finally, chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, which we've already looked at, is the call to submission within the church. Okay? So all the realms of our life we are called to submit to by being responsive to authority. Okay? That's our humility. Fourth, and finally, fourth statement, finally, humility is redemptive. Humility is redemptive in that it vividly displays the gospel. Humility is redemptive in that it vividly displays the gospel. We are called to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to teach them through our word and our deeds all that Jesus has taught. That's what we're called to do. 
Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, when a disciple is fully matured, he will be just like his teacher. So if we are to make disciples not of me, not of you, but of Christ, right? And when the disciple is fully mature, they will be like their teacher. What we're saying is we are, to, we are to be used of God in the process of, through word and deed, helping people to grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the model that we're after. So what does it look like in the realm of humility to be modeled after Christ? What did Christ look like in all of that? And how does that put the gospel on display? Notice Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, Learn from me, I am humble. Learn from me, I am humble. So someone formed in the image of Christ, right, growing in maturity and lightness of Christ, is someone who is humble. It's humble. So Paul will speak to it in Colossians chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Put on a heart of humility. Put on a heart of humility. And if you put on a heart of humility, it will result in a forgiving spirit. There's a connection in this passage between humility and the willingness to forgive. This displays the gospel. This vividly displays the gospel. For the gospel is the only Religion in the world that makes provision for forgiveness, true forgiveness, that really deals with sin and transgression, that really reconciles people both to God and to each other. Of course, the classic passage is the Philippians chapter 2, right? Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and following, where Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Others Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The path of exaltation of Christ is the path of humility. That is the gospel message. So it is as we live with humility before one another and in a watching world that the gospel is put on display. 
Beloved, we are aliens and strangers in this world. And this world is hostile. And it is growing more hostile day by day as pride takes an ever-increasing toll on the sanity of man. It's going to get worse, not better. But we are different. We are different. And we're called to live differently. We're called to live with, a, with an ethic and a character that is so out of step with the world around us, it is crazy. And I know it's a struggle. I know the, you know, again, back to that inner defense lawyer, you know, asserting my, I've got my rights. You know, I know. I get it. But we're being called upon to emulate our Savior. And that can only come about as the Spirit of God works within us. May he do his glorious work, huh? Let's pray. Father, humility is perhaps the highest of Christian virtue. And in that sense, probably the most elusive It is so difficult. Pride lies within us. It's poison root still sending forth shoots. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes a willingness, Father. Your Spirit wants these things of us. He will empower us if if we will but cooperate. Father, help us to, to really prize humility. Not that we would get a prize for humility, but that we would see it as the great virtue that it is. The embodiment of our own Savior. The source, really, of his very mission to seek and to save the lost. A willingness to trust you. That if he humbled himself and came and lived and died for us, that that he would be exalted back to your right hand and, and that he would see the fruit of his labor in a bride that he has redeemed. Father, help us to have that kind of thinking that would transcend the here and now. Continue the good work you've begun in us, Lord. Help us. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.